Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent. Down the line from Frankfurt, we have Olaf Storbeck, our correspondent there. And also here in London, Kate Allen, our capital markets correspondent. Our guest today is Katie Bennett, who's a director of diversity and inclusion in PwC's consultancy practice. Today, we'll be discussing UBS as it faces criticism over its treatment of women in Switzerland a look at the return of the Eurozone doom loop in banking. And finally, Deutsche and Commerzbank. Are they going to merge? First, though, to that UBS story. Stephen, you broke a very interesting story about how a dozen or so UBS wealth management bankers had been treated badly in terms of their bonus payments after they'd been on maternity leave. Tell us exactly what happened. Well, that's right. Basically, these women who, as you said, were all wealth managers, they lived in Switzerland, they found that when they were taking the seven months they were entitled to for maternity leave off, their bonuses were being reduced on a semi-pro rata basis for that year to reflect the time they weren't in the office. Now, they didn't all necessarily have a problem with that. What happened, though, when they came back was that their bonuses were rebased or reset at this lower level that had been reduced down. And then they kind of continued on permanently from that. So effectively, they were losing out versus their male colleagues that weren't taking similar time off. And then they were doing the same job, essentially, for less money. Now, obviously, the more children you had, the more time you spent off, the more this was actually happening to you and the further and further behind you were getting. It obviously doesn't make UBS look particularly progressive. Do we know if this is restricted to their Swiss operation, their wealth management operation, whether it's company policy or it was a kind of aberration due to certain managers? Well, when we spoke to the company, they said this certainly wasn't a policy. Their global head of diversity and inclusion was aware of the issue and had taken some steps to address it. But according to our sources, it was still happening. Now, when we spoke to them, they said, well, we don't think this is happening quite so much in London and New York because there are stronger legal protections there. Switzerland, after all, has one of the least generous policies towards new mothers and new fathers across the whole continent. But we will be looking into whether this is a more general practice across Switzerland, across the financial services industry in general. Well, maybe uh, Katie Bennett from PwC can help us on that. Give us a shortcut on our homework. What's your impression of this story? Did it shock you or is it the kind of thing you see across the financial world? Obviously, I can't comment on UBS in particular. I'm certainly not surprised to hear that there are some challenges for financial services. I mean, when we saw the gender pay gap numbers come in here in the UK, banking is by far the highest sector, even compared to other parts of financial services. Their average pay gap is 34%. That tells you something about the number of senior women who are working in these organisations. And from memory, one of the big reasons why there's such a gap is around bonuses, isn't it? Whether that stems from this kind of treatment post-maternity leave 
or just a general different treatment on bonuses? Well, the bonus gap is actually higher than that number. So it's almost 60% in banking. And that reflects a lot of different complexities, including the fact that more senior people tend to get larger bonuses. So we see a kind of doubling up of the pay gap. Yeah, absolutely. Do you see any differences regionally or by type of business wealth management versus investment banking? So we haven't been able to look at the real ins and outs because, of course, lots of banks do lots of different activities. Certainly, when we look at kind of pure banking compared to, say, investment management, the gap tends to be higher. But on the flip side, if I look at the organisations who've done the most work on diversity, who've really invested time and effort in trying to look at these issues, they are probably the big banks. So there's a few different things going on here. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Stephen, that UBS came out very forcefully last week with International Women's Day, along with lots of other financial services employers, pushing this idea that they were very keen on diversity, on closing that gender pay gap, making a lot of noise. And I think, you know, in many cases, there's a genuine desire to improve things. Is there a sense that there's a gap between the knowledge of what's going on at the top of these institutions and actually what middle managers are doing in practice, do you think? Well, UBS, especially the chairman, Axel Weber, has been very upfront. You know, they've been really at the vanguard of gender equality and they've set themselves a target of having 30% of women in senior leadership positions. Now, if you look at the group executive board, there's one woman on it and 11 white men. So they're not there right at the top. So they must be aware of the problem at the highest level. And one of the problems that you get from treating women poorly when they take maternity leave is you discourage them rising up through the ramps. You're almost sort of stalling their careers and preventing them from filling the bench below the top executive levels, which is where they will eventually get later on. So this is a problem that kind of manifests itself in several ways. And I'd be interested to hear what new things you're counselling your clients to do in order to try and close this gap between senior female and male bankers. Your description of the lack of women in senior levels is absolutely representative of many in the industry. And I think the way you kind of describe it is absolutely right. The reality is that this is because if we think about the number of women in the organisation and the way they're moving, there just aren't enough of them coming up through the ranks. And this is a generational challenge, and that makes it so hard. We're not going to change it tomorrow. This is about thinking about individual decisions that are being made throughout an organisation about recruitment, about promotion, about access to the best projects, and bringing those all back together. So I think there's some great initiatives that have been going on in many organisations, but the reality is it's going back to those processes and really testing Are they fair? Are they structured in the right way? And actually, how are we treating not just women who are having children, but men and making sure that everybody can have a kind of full life and work flexibly within their organisation? Give us a couple of examples of some of the most interesting initiatives that you've seen or maybe that you've designed and encouraged your clients to use. There's so many out there and I think I always start by saying what works for one organisation won't work for another and that's because fundamental to trying to solve this problem is understanding why you personally have a problem and that's going to be really different. But, for example, if you know that you have a challenge around recruitment, adapting the way you recruit, so doing things like leaving your vacancy window open for longer will encourage more diverse candidates. Changing some of the language and job descriptions can have a massive impact on who applies. And then thinking about who is doing interviews, how they're being trained and how their decisions are being challenged. So these aren't about big policy shifts. They're about little moments in a process that can really drive change. 
Certainly one trick that I came across anecdotally used by a couple of employers was the exact obverse of what UBS is accused of doing with these Swiss wealth managers, i.e. post-maternity leave actually granting an additional bonus to women when they came back to work to kind of enthuse them or encourage them to come back or stay. Have you come across that much and is that does it work? I'm not sure how much I've come across that specific example. Certainly something that is really common is returnships. So something a bit similar to an apprenticeship or a graduate program, but specifically targeted at men and women who have had a career break, whether that's to look after children, to look after perhaps the elderly, or just to take a break from their career. And certainly we've seen a lot of progress in that, in encouraging people back in in that middle levels. I think what's difficult about that is it works well if you're a big employer it's an awful lot harder to do that if you're a very small employer and actually maybe you don't have that much turnover yeah absolutely well certainly plenty of food for thought for the financial services employers out there katie bennett from pwc thank you so much Let's move on now to our second story of the day and a look at the Eurozone banking sector as a whole and the apparent return of the so-called doom loop. This is basically where sovereign governments and the banks in those countries get caught in a vicious circle, really, because of the bank's exposure to sovereign debt and the cost of funding that shadows government levels of funding. I spoke earlier to Kate Allen, our Capital Markets correspondent, about exactly what's going on. So, Kate, thanks for joining us. You did a very interesting piece the other day looking at the extent to which the doom loop among Eurozone banks is back in play. Tell us exactly what your data research found. So I looked at the Eurozone Bank's net purchases of their own domestic sovereigns' debt. Sovereign debt holdings are very useful for banks because their risk weighting is very favourable. It's very attractive to hold sovereign debt. The problem for the Eurozone is that political and fiscal eruptions can therefore feed through into banks' balance sheets quite quickly, and that can have an impact on banks' lending to the economy and so on. What I looked at was the ECB, the European Central Bank, produces a monthly data series showing banks' holdings of their own domestic sovereign's debt. And that has ticked up into positive territory for the first time since early 2015 over the year to January, which is the most recent data. So basically we can see that they've been scaling up their holdings again, which is potentially a concern for policymakers. So in the prior four years, there'd been a kind of net reduction in banks' exposure to their own sovereigns. Of course, back in 2012, 2013, there was a huge increase, wasn't there, in and around the Eurozone crisis. And that fueled the concerns of policymakers around the exposure that these banks had to their sovereigns at a time when those sovereigns looked to be in trouble. Yes. So the first thing that a bank does when times are looking tough is to go out there and seek to shore up its balance sheet. And holding sovereign debt, these are very highly rated assets, which from a regulatory standpoint are very favourable and arguably post-financial crisis regulation has actually encouraged banks to hold more sovereign debt because of that. Now, since the European Central Bank launched its quantitative easing programme of bond buying in early 2016, I think it was, it has become the biggest buyer in the market for sovereign debt in the Eurozone. And that has soaked up a great big wadge of countries and governments' bonds, which banks previously were buying. So you could say that central banks had replaced, to some degree, banks and financial institutions as buyers in the sovereign debt market. But with QE having ended in December, it looks as though that pendulum is now swinging back and banks are now starting to load up on the sovereign debt again. 
One of the other reasons they may be liking to buy these sovereign bonds, certainly back in the Eurozone crisis, but maybe to an extent again now, is because certain of these countries still offer very favourable yields on these bonds. And it's a nice way to bolster your profit margins, isn't it? That's certainly true for some. I mean, you know, obviously German debt, some German debt is shorter dated debt is negative yielding. Absolutely. But say you're a periphery country, you're Spain, Italy in particular, these are the countries where this trend is particularly notable. And, you know, when it comes to holdings of sovereign debt, that's where a lot of the concerns have been focused. Last year, we had a succession of repeated sell-offs in the Italian sovereign bond market, which created a whole new wave of concern about the country's banks. We had the Bank of Italy coming out and warning about this doom loop effect and the consequences that it was having for various reasons. I mean, it's not just one straightforward loop. It's kind of a complicated ecosystem of interactions that have various consequences. Absolutely. Talk to us as well about another element of this is the ECB launching last week a new chapter of its so-called targeted longer term financing operation, dubbed TLTRO or TELTRO. Tell us exactly what's gone on there what it's about. Why have they launched this again? This is basically cheap funding for banks. Yes, so before the quantitative easing programme of sovereign bond buying started, the ECB had a previous stimulus programme which was focused on providing cheap long-term funding for banks as an attempt to stimulate the eurozone economy after the financial crisis. And then the attention switched to the sovereign bond market with the QE programme and now the QE programme has come to an end and the eurozone economy is showing signs of slowing and causing concern and maybe some ECB watchers feel that actually the timing of the ending of QE was quite ironic in that regard. And so there's been a lot of expectation that the ECB was likely to launch a fresh programme of cheap lending for the Eurozone's banks, mainly as an economic stimulus, but also in recognition that as the current programme of Teltro's comes to an end in 2020 and 2021, that will leave Eurozone banks facing basically a cliff edge, financing-wise. And as those loans become past a less than one-year maturity mark, which will be for the first tranche of them in June this year, that changes the way in which they have to be treated in terms of the capital requirements in terms of what assets they have to hold against them to become much less favourable. So it leaves banks with a financing problem, basically. So this ECB action caught people by surprise a little bit because it was quite quick and swift, but they've acted basically just in time to effectively help banks to roll over some of the loans that they currently enjoy from the ECB at cheap rates. So in conclusion, how should we interpret both sides of this story? On the one hand, the stocking up of sovereign debt once more on a net basis and the launch of the Teltro programme. Should we be nervous on a net basis about the prospects for Eurozone banks? Well, announcing the new Teltro programme last week, Mario Draghi, the ECB president, noted that banks had, in previous rounds of cheap funding from the ECB, had previously used some of that funding to stock up on sovereign debt. And he acknowledged that, but he said that they had tweaked the nature of the lending programme to incentivise banks to lend to the real economy more and stop exacerbating the doom loop by using the money to buy sovereign debt and generate yields from sovereign debt in that way. However, this evidence that there has been this uptick in banks' purchases of sovereign debt does suggest that it should be a concern for policymakers with the new funding round of cheap loans. They want to see that lending reaching businesses and households. They don't want to see it reaching the sovereign debt market. Absolutely. Well, I think the only way to hold them to account is by keeping a check on the data month by month. So we'll come back to you on that, Kate. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
So let's move on to our third story, an update on a story that we've been following quite closely over recent months, growing suggestions of a combination in the works between Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank. Joined now by Olaf Stobeck from Frankfurt. Olaf, thanks very much for being with us today. You've been writing a few stories on this and things have moved on a level, haven't they? The latest being that the chief executive has been given at least informal go-ahead to speak with his counterparts at Commerzbank and try and get a deal. So yes, after a month of dithering, the Deutsche Bank CEO Christian Seving has asked the executive board for a mandate to evaluate options informally about merging with Commerzbank. And people in Frankfurt tell me that the key idea of Seving at the moment is to get an informal guarantee from politicians in Berlin, especially from Finance Minister Olaf Scholz, who is the Vice-Chancellor and the senior Social Democrat and probably the next Social Democratic Party leader and potentially their candidate for the Chancellery, to basically back brutal cost cuts should a merger be agreed. The fear is that as a merger might put 20,000 or even more jobs on the line, you get a political debate in Germany with politicians, especially left of center politicians, blaming Deutsche Bank for destroying people's livelihoods. And Deutsche apparently wants to make sure that if they even look at a deal and probably do it later, they are not getting under political fire from the Social Democrats, from Olaf Scholz, the finance minister. At the moment, the trade unions, which play an important role in both companies, have many representatives on the supervisory board, are dead against a merger because they fear significant job cuts. And apparently the precondition of Christian Saving, before he even starts looking at this whole deal in earnest, is to have a free reign to do what it takes to turn this into a success with regards to cost cuts and, and job cuts. Let me bring Stephen in for a view on that, because... Really, without that assurance that costs could be cut to make the most of a combination of these two banks, there really is very little rationale for doing this deal. Well, that's right. I mean, the biggest problem at Deutsche right now is its investment bank. And aside from bringing in a broader base of deposits and reducing the funding costs and getting this implicit or explicit stake backing for this newly combined banking champion, Commerzbank doesn't actually do anything for some of the big problem businesses at Deutsche, like its US equities business. It might help a little bit with the Global Transaction Bank, but certainly, at least on the trading desks and the IBD side, Commerzbank got rid of its ambitions in those areas a long time ago. So it would be really interesting to be a fly on the wall in these informal discussions and see exactly what the two leaders are talking about. I mean, as we flagged in our big analysis piece at the beginning of last week on Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank, there would have to be an absolutely brutal level of job cuts, 20,000 plus. And these aren't 20,000 unpopular, incredibly well-paid investment bankers. These would be essentially you know, the equivalent of civil service. They will be rank and file, back office or branch staff in small towns in Germany. And whether anyone has a political stomach to create an international banking capital markets champion on the back of slashing all of these people in Germany where there seem to be perpetual elections is a real issue. Particularly when it would be a senior SPD politician giving the go-ahead for that. This is the Socialist Party part of the coalition. Olaf, what do you think the chances are of Mr. Seving getting that assurance? I think odds are rather high that he will get this assurance because all evidence suggests that Berlin and the finance ministry is really keen to sort this out. 
the key rationale in from Berlin's point of view apparently isn't stabilizing and safeguarding Deutsche Bank, but it's sorting Commerzbank out, where the government has a 15% stake since the previous financial crisis. And the fear apparently in Berlin is that with a new economic downturn potentially looming and the risk of economic growth collapsing, Commerz, which is a big lender to the German Mittelstand, the small and medium-sized enterprises, might end up with a lot of credit turning sour in the future and that might force a recapitalization of commerce and with a lender which is on its own not able to be successful in the long term that's a perspective which apparently in Berlin nobody is really appealed of. So the government wants to find a solution for commerce bank. A domestic merger with Deutsche Bank would be the first choice. Deutsche has first dibs on commerce, but if Deutsche decides against it, the expectation is that the government then would seek to try to find a foreign bidder, maybe France's BNP Paribas or ING, which might end up owning commerce. And that, in a way, would be bad for Deutsche in two ways. First of all, it would take the domestic consolidation off the table. And secondly, it would create a strong competitor for Deutsche on its home market. So in a way, you could say it could be the final nail into Deutsche's coffin. And those two arguments are probably a strong reason for Deutsche to actually get engaged. And I think that Berlin will in return give them a political kind of guarantee to not go on about the job cuts. Obviously, that's not something which is binding in any way. And you never know how the political circumstances will pan out over the next few months. So it's a high stakes game in many ways. Of course, very interesting to hear you talking about government's concerns about Commerzbank, but obviously there are broader concerns, whether from the German government or from regulators around the stability of Deutsche going forward and the slump in its share price and its funding costs having risen is going to be of systemic concern. Putting these two together and having the German government as a shareholder is, I suppose, going to allay those concerns. But thinking about all of this from a commercial shareholder's point of view, it doesn't feel like a particularly good place, does it, to be a commercial shareholder in either of these two banks, given that it's political considerations and systemic stability considerations that seem to be driving everything here. Yes, I mean, it's not for no reason that most large shareholders we talk to on an off-record basis are highly sceptical of the deal for several reasons. The stuff Stephen pointed out of a merger not fixing Deutsche's core problems. Another problem is that Deutsche is still working on integrating Postbank, this German retail bank. This process is not finished and could be derailed. You end up with a three-way merger then integrating Commerzbank's retail operations, Deutsche's and Postbank in one go with both lenders running outdated IT systems. So this easily could go wrong in many ways. And one regulator told me that they are really concerned Deutsche might bungle a merger and that they would not only look at how viable the future business model of a bank is, but also how credible any implementation plan is. Yes, well, I think one thing we can be very certain of, it's not going to be a smooth passage from here for either Deutsche or Commerz. Thank you, Olaf and Stephen. Thank you for your thoughts on that running story. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Stephen here in the studio, Kate Allen, who we spoke to earlier, also Olaf down the line, and our guest, Katie Bennett from PwC. 
Thank you for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.